It's Wednesday, August 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. State of emergency declared in Wisconsin and the National Guard deployed as protests grow over the shooting of Jacob Blake. Video from over the weekend shows an incident with police in which Blake was shot seven times in the back. His family now says he is paralyzed from the waist down. Fabiola Sinias, race reporter at Fox, joins us for what we know about the shooting of Jacob Blake. Next, the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated the adoption of telemedicine and its role in the healthcare system by at least three years, some experts say. This increased use is also driving a slew of possible business deals. Some telehealth companies are getting ready for initial public offerings, while others are exploring sales and acquisitions. Sarah Krauss, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, as the Republicans continue their convention this week, polls are showing that there was no convention bump for Joe Biden. While he still maintains a lead over President Trump, limited polls show that there is no change in his image rating or his lead over the president. Stephen Shepard, senior campaign editor at Politico, joins us for the lack of a convention bump. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The irony isn't lost on me that is Jacob Blake was actually trying to de-escalate a situation in his community, but the responding officer didn't feel the need to do the same. And now we all know Jacob Blake's name. Joining us now is Fabiola Sinias, race reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Fabiola. Thank you for having me. We have another police shooting of a black man. This one happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Jacob Blake was reportedly shot about seven to eight times. Reports are saying that he is in the hospital in stable condition. He might be paralyzed from the waist down. And once again, we have video to support kind of what happened. We don't know what happened before the altercation with police, but we clearly see the incident that happened with Jacob Blake and police and how he was shot. So let's start there. There's been nights of protest and, you know, a bunch of bad stuff going on with that. As usual, once night falls, things start catching on fire. There's violence. You know, it's happening all over again, as it did in the case of George Floyd. But Fabiola, tell us what happened in this case with Jacob Blake. The incident with Jacob Blake took place on Sunday. And we know what happened because we saw it on video. So there was a bystander across the street who recorded this incident. And the video is only 19 seconds. So with a lot of these videos, we don't exactly know what happened after usually. And we don't really know what happens before the shooting takes place. But within these 19 seconds, what we see is Jacob Blake emerge from one side of a gray SUV that's parked on the side of a street. And as he emerges from like the side that we can't see, we see two officers follow him from the side of the vehicle. And he basically walks in front of the vehicle to get to the driver's side door of the vehicle to open it. And so the two officers are pursuing him and their guns are drawn and pointed directly at Blake's back. And as Blake goes to open up the driver's side door, one of the officers grabs onto his white tank top pretty forcefully. And then as Jacob opens the door and leans forward a little bit into the car, this officer fires seven shots. And so it's a bit unclear how many shots were fired and whether it was just the one officer who fired shots. But according to Jacob Blake's dad, who gave an interview to the Chicago Sun-Times, his son has eight holes in his body and is now paralyzed from the waist down. So on Sunday, the family of Blake retained Benjamin Crump, who's a civil rights attorney. And according to Benjamin Crump, three of Blake's children were actually in the vehicle 
when he got shot, which is something that's extremely terrifying to think of and just is obviously going to be very traumatic for the children. There are reports that the officer might have said something about drop the knife, although it doesn't seem like he's holding something in that instance. So as you mentioned, we have some video of it actually happening, but before and after, you can't really tell what's going on. The officers were responding to a domestic violence call there, but even then, the police have not really said anything about the nature of the call or why they were talking to Jacob Blake himself. One of the interesting things about this also is that there's no police badge cams. They're not wearing them. And I guess they had been delaying this for some time. The Kenosha Police Department, what do we know about that? So according to the Kenosha News, police officers, sergeants do not wear body cameras. But apparently this year there's been a push to change that to basically put funding towards body cameras. And so according to the Kenosha News, that, however, is not going to be taken out by lawmakers until 2021. And that's the same thing for a bunch of other police reform bills that Governor Tony Evers has actually tried to advance in the state of Wisconsin as well. And as I mentioned at the beginning, there was nights of unrest, protests that, you know, largely start out peaceful. Then as night falls, they start getting much more violent, cars being set on fire. They had to call in the National Guard to protect certain buildings and assets there. And there was even a curfew set up as well. So it just seems like we're going to maybe expect some more of this in the next coming days. So the National Guard, as you said, was deployed and there's a state of emergency in the state as well. Police, yeah, each night has come out with riot gear. And in addition to Kenosha, right, this unrest has spread to a number of other cities. So I definitely think that police officers are even more on edge right now. And Evers is watching the situation very closely. And I think... Officials are saying they really want to protect buildings because a lot of like the black business district was burned down in Kenosha. And so folks are really concerned about the courthouse and other city structures. The officers involved in the shooting have been placed on administrative leave and the state's Justice Department is conducting an investigation into this. They say they're going to submit their findings to a prosecutor within 30 days. They have up to 30 days, I guess. But with all of these things, you know, time is so crucial. Protests are going to keep going they're going to have to really step up their game on this investigation and and get it done quickly so that we can start having some types of resolutions to this. That is absolutely correct. And, and the issue, as you said before, the lack of body cameras is going to make things go way slower with the investigation because now police have to find witnesses and really get their case together. So hopefully, right, it would be great if things were done sooner than 30 right. days. But I think what we've seen from the past is that that's just not going to be the case. Fabiola Sanias, race reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Talkspace, which is the text message-based therapy company, that is seen by some companies as a potential target if a sort of generic telemedicine platform wanted to build out a behavioral health offering. Joining us now is Sarah Krause reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Because of the coronavirus pandemic, you know, a lot of people couldn't get to their regular doctor for checkups, things like that. They were worried, you know, you go out in public, you might catch coronavirus. And what it's really done was kind of fuel the rise of telemedicine. It was already around before the pandemic, but because of the shutdowns and all that, it kind of just made this rise exponentially. Some people have said that it sped up the adoption of telehealth by about three years. And there's a bunch of companies right now that are going through the process of either doing an IPO, 
selling their company because everybody wants a piece of this. So Sarah, tell us a little bit about how telemedicine is just really booming right now. When the pandemic hit, as you say, a lot of doctor's offices either shut down or severely reduced the number of appointments that they could do. Um, And some patients were afraid to go to the doctor because they were worried about the risk of becoming infected with COVID-19 if they went to an appointment in a medical setting. So what that did is sort of drove both patients and doctors to connect online, either through video conferencing or in some cases the phone. And that really lifted telemedicine as a concept, which prior to the pandemic hadn't really taken off in a big way. And that partly had to do with the fact that insurers didn't reimburse for telemedicine visits at the same level as they did in person. So there really wasn't a financial incentive to go that route if you didn't have to. Tell us some of the companies that have been doing pretty well throughout this. So earlier this month, Teladoc, which is the largest of the sort of major telehealth platforms, agreed to an $18.5 billion deal to buy Livongo Health, which is a remote chronic care management company. That was the first sort of big deal in this space. Telehealth company Amwell or American Well in recent months explored a sale instead of going public, though on Monday they filed a registration statement for an IPO and are moving towards that path. MD Live, which is another telehealth platform, is preparing for an IPO early next year and are talking to investors that tend to invest both in the private and public markets right now. And then Talkspace, which is the text message-based therapy company, that is seen by some companies as a potential target if a sort of generic telemedicine platform wanted to build out a behavioral health offering. So this flurry of deals is sort of some moving towards the private markets, some diversifying the stable of care that they can offer. So there's a lot of activity right now because adoption is so high. And one thing we haven't talked about is one of the major facilitators of this are regulatory changes that have happened during the pandemic. So, for example, I mentioned before that telehealth visits weren't reimbursed at the same level as in person. That has now changed during the public health emergency. So there's sort of equal weight given to those visits, and that encourages more people to say, maybe we can do this visit remotely instead of in person. When we talk about these companies, you know, making big sales and IPOs and all that, profitability. There's uh, neither Teladoc nor Amwell, some of the companies you mentioned, have achieved profitability. So how does this factor into all of it? Teladoc has said it is moving towards profitability. Um, You know, I think one of the big questions hanging over the industry in general is how permanent are these changes? The Trump administration has, you know, made some of them permanent, but it's unclear how long those reimbursement levels will remain the same. You know, and the other risk to this is the commoditization of the service. If electronic health record companies offer telehealth portals and the need for these separate telehealth platforms isn't there, if usage declines as people get back to what, you know, their sort of typical routine of actually going to see the doctor, do they leave this behind? So there are some unanswered questions about the long-term sort of stability and future of this industry, but most people who are either in the sector or bullish on it say, no, like the convenience of this and what the pandemic proved in terms of its use cases is not going away. And if anything, there are more ways in which connected devices could be brought into the mix, relationships with hospitals to remove some of the need to travel to a doctor's office, park your car, go inside, wait for the doctor, see the doctor leave, you know, all those sort of time-consuming aspects of seeing a medical professional. Can this smooth that out? Can you have the follow-up appointment from your surgery this way? Or can you have an initial appointment, uh, you know, remotely as triage before you have to go to a doctor? 
do these platforms provide their own doctors or let's say, you know, I have my own personal doctor. Can they set something up through them or am I just doing a Zoom call with my own personal doctor? How does that part of it work? So some of the regulatory changes that the pandemic has brought during the public health emergency is the main federal healthcare privacy law. You know, the Trump administration has said we're not going to enforce that if you want to do a visit over FaceTime or over platforms that weren't typically HIPAA compliant. You can now do that. It's unclear how long that will last. But there are other doctor's offices that have their own systems in place through their health record systems, you know, that, with which they can connect with patients. So, yes, there is some of seeing your own doctor. There are also platforms like Teladoc, you know, that has their own stable of doctors as well as doctors that act sort of as contractors who maybe log in at the end of their day at their normal practice and are available to pick up patients in the waiting room who need 24-hour care and maybe can't connect directly with their doctor. So it's a fair mix. It sort of depends on the platform and the need of the patient in the moment. Sarah Krause, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. She, uh, she's an incredible uh, woman who uh, just, and on the Judiciary Committee, which I used to chair for years, I watched her just insist on getting the answers and not, not relenting uh, until she got the answers. And so I, I just, uh, and it just seemed to fit. Joining us now is Stephen Shepard, Senior Campaign Editor at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thanks for having me. The Republicans are going through their convention right now. The Democrats had theirs last week. And one of the things we're looking for to see is how much of a bump Joe Biden would have gotten because of the convention. Typically, on a normal election cycle, the conventions provide a bump to their candidate. And the other good marker to look at is fundraising dollars. But this year, everything's different. The Democrats had a virtual convention. Republicans are doing something modified, but it's really being done without an audience. So what do the polls say about the bump that Joe Biden might have gotten. It doesn't seem like he got much of anything. That's absolutely right. It doesn't seem like he's gotten much of anything. We also don't have that many polls. And both are likely a function of the fact the two conventions are back to back. Now, some of your listeners may recall that when we were initially planning the 2020 election calendar, Democrats were planning to hold their convention in the middle of July before the Summer Olympics. And Republicans were going to go this week. There was going to be a five or six week gap between the two conventions. That's not what ended up happening. Democrats kicked their convention back to mid-August, hoping that they could buy some time and put on a typical convention. Obviously, that isn't what they were able to end up doing in the end. They had to go virtual anyway. And that really eliminated the opportunity for Joe Biden to really get to make that argument without the immediate rebuttal. They had hoped that they could ride the wave of that convention through the end of July and into August. And then that's just not what ended up happening. Right. Obviously, so much of American life has been disrupted and this campaign has been disrupted. And we're seeing that now in the polls that we do have. They show perhaps a modest uptick in Joe Biden's favorability rating. You know, anyone who watched that convention. There was a lot of Joe Biden's personal and professional story, obviously presented by the Democratic Party in a way to make viewers see him more favorably. We're going to get a lot of that, I'm sure. And we started last night with the Republicans. So, you know, that's one thing you look for. But on the ballot test where Joe Biden had a significant lead over Donald Trump of high single digits to about 10 points, 
The polls that we have conducted before the convention and after the convention don't show that that's changed at all. Were there any polls that reflected anything on Senator Kamala Harris, Joe Biden's running mate? Any of her favorabilities move at all? We did see some increase in her favorability rating around two different kind of inflection points on her selection as Joe Biden's running mate. And again, around the convention last week, Political Morning Console poll showed a slight uptick in her favorability ratings just over this past weekend. Obviously, again, under the same sort of idea that you're introducing or reintroducing Kamala Harris, unlike some other running mates who did not seek the presidency, think essentially other since Joe Biden, all the running mates have not been presidential candidates, Sarah Palin in 2008, Paul Ryan in 2012, both Tim Kaine and Mike Pence didn't run for president in 2016, and they didn't really have national profiles, and the convention was an opportunity to introduce them. For Kamala Harris, because she ran for president, she was known among certain segments of the, of the populace, especially those on both Democratic and Republican parties who pay closer attention to politics. So this was an opportunity to reintroduce her to voters, and that did seem to move the needle a little bit at least on a temporary basis. And obviously, now Republicans are seeking to do the same and will seek to do the same for Vice President Pence and President Trump on Wednesday and Thursday. Just looking at the polls, since Joe Biden didn't really get much of a bump and the timing of the whole thing, this really seems like the opportunity for Republicans and President Trump to get the best of this whole thing. Because if they come out looking pretty good at the end of their convention, they will benefit the most from any type of bump. As you've mentioned, (laughs) the immediate rebuttal came after a few days at the end of the Democratic convention. So really not much to gain there. I would also add that getting the larger convention bump doesn't necessarily guarantee success. You know, I mentioned 2008 and Sarah Palin. Some of your listeners may recall that Barack Obama's acceptance speech was on a Thursday night in Denver, and the Republican convention was going to be the following week. So again, back to back. John McCain, as of Barack Obama's acceptance speech, had not yet announced his running mate. He was going to roll it out the day after, about 8.30 in the morning Eastern time. News of Palin's selection leaked to the press. By early afternoon, she was in an event in Ohio. John McCain's campaign actively seeking to step on any convention bounce that Barack Obama got. And in the end, when you looked at the polls, John McCain's convention bounce was larger than Barack Obama's in that election. Obviously, that didn't get his success because he ended up losing that election by about seven percentage points, which in terms of our modern presidential elections is is a a veritable landslide. So getting the better of that convention bounce isn't necessarily a long-term mark of success. But in this case, it does seem important because what we know about this election, both in terms of what's been happening over the past few years with increased adoption of in-person early voting, and absentee voting, and then add on top of that what's going to happen this year with the pandemic and sharp increase in mail ballots in North Carolina, where Republicans were supposed to hold their convention. Their mail ballots are getting sent out, we believe, next week at some point. So even though Election Day is 70 days away, some folks are going to be voting soon. So getting the better of that convention ballots might actually be a boon for whichever party ends up on top at the end of this two-week convention period. Stephen Shepard. Senior Campaign Editor at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.